Uh, hey, thanks so much for being here in our third week in a series that we've been calling All is Calm. And of course, uh, this has been our Christmas series. And so I do want to say that if you're a guest with us here this evening, kind of like Sarah Beth had just mentioned a moment ago, uh, we count it an absolute privilege that you would be with us here tonight. So thanks for being with us here. And uh, if you are just jumping in, if you missed the last couple of weeks, let me kind of fill you in on sort of what we've been talking about together over the course of the last couple of weeks. So in this series, what we've been discussing is we've been talking a lot about the peace and the calm uh, that is available to us through the true meaning and through the true message of Christmas. And so we've been saying that, you know, for, in our culture today, that for many of us, I think if I was to ask you to describe Christmas in one word, uh, probably the last word that you would use to describe Christmas at your home and with your family and our culture is probably the word calm, right? And for many of us, the word that we might use to describe Christmas and the holidays, you know, in our culture and in our homes and our families might be more like chaotic or busy or frenzied or exciting or exhilarating or whatever it might be. Some of us might say expensive or dysfunctional. There's a lot of different words that we would use to try to kind of describe the, the holidays. But my guess is, for many of us, the last word that we would use is calm. And yet, what we've been talking about in this series is we've been saying that Christmas, that understanding the true message and understanding the true meaning of Christmas, which of course is what we've been discussing and investigating together, we said that that actually has the power to bring you calm and to bring you peace, even in the midst of the most chaotic circumstances. And so what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying, regardless of what your family dynamics might be this holiday season, uh, that regardless of what your relational status might be this holiday season, uh, regardless of what your health condition might be or your financial situation might be, uh, that the true message and the true meaning of Christmas has the ability to bring inner calm even in the midst of outer chaos. And so we've been looking at that together and kind of getting our hearts and our minds around the true meaning of Christmas. And I, I don't know about you, but that, I found that to be so important, that every Christmas, uh, Christmas time comes around, and it always seems like it gets here so fast. I mean, I can't believe next week is Christmas already. And I find myself just, you know, kind of scrambling once again in the holiday season to get my heart and to get my mind around the true meaning of Christmas. And so just even being here tonight and having a chance to do that is such an excellent thing uh, during this holiday season for us just to pause and to reflect and to say, well, let's just pause for a minute in the midst of all the frenzied activity and all the things that are happening, let's just pause for a second and let's just reflect on what is the true meaning and what is the true message of Christmas to kind of get our hearts around that. Since we've been doing in this series, and it's been a really interesting series because the, the way in which we've been looking at the true meaning of Christmas has been that we've been looking at the genealogy of Jesus. We've been looking at kind of this bizarre, sort of obscure passage in the Bible, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, this genealogy or this lineage or this ancestry of Jesus. And we've been looking at that to discover the true meaning of Christmas. In fact, we're actually going to do that again tonight. And so I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me once again. And we're going to go back again to Matthew chapter 1, one final time in this series. So Matthew chapter 1 is where I want to invite you to grab your Bibles as we, uh, we kind of dig into today's message. If you didn't bring a Bible with you uh, this evening, that's not a problem at all. We have some Bibles for you, and you can turn to page 675, and those Bibles that should be in the chairs there in front of you or underneath you, so you can grab those black Bibles and you can get there to page 675 in those Bibles. That's where you're going to find Matthew chapter 1. And as you're flipping there, what you're going to find in Matthew chapter 1, of course, is you're going to find uh, the, uh, the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus' birth, of his life, of his death, and of his resurrection. That's what Matthew is all about. It's the story of Jesus. And it's from the vantage point of this guy, Matthew. And so Matthew, as some of you know, was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He was with Jesus. And so here he's writing about the, the story and the account of Jesus' life. And so we're going to kind of find that here in Matthew chapter 1. 
And again, as you're kind of flipping there, what you'll notice about Matthew chapter 1 and and what we've noticed in the weeks past is that when Matthew begins his story about Jesus, uh, he starts with a genealogy. Uh, He decides to begin his story with Christ with with this genealogical account of uh, Jesus's kind of his lineage. And you can kind of see that there in this passage. What we've been saying is, we've been saying that, man, this passage, that this genealogy from verse 1 to 17, this tends to be one of those passages that for most of us, if we're real honest, we usually skip over this or we skim past it, and we usually want to just kind of get, get through it to get on to the rest of the Christmas story. And that's understandable, because a genealogy is obviously full of a bunch of names we can't pronounce. It's full of a bunch of people that we don't know. And so usually we skim right past this, and we try to get on to the rest of the story. But what we've been saying in this series, we've been saying, and that's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. Uh, because Matthew's decision to start this, this whole gospel of Jesus with a genealogy was actually very strategic on his part. In fact, we actually said this. I went as far to say, I think everything you need to know about Christmas is communicated through this genealogy. I even went as far to say this. I said, I think that everything you need to know about Christianity that the basic tenets of what Christianity is all about is communicated through this simple list of 42 names in this genealogy. And so for the past couple of weeks, like I said, if you missed it, we've been actually looking at the different truths, uh, kind of unearthing those as they uh, have kind of, as Matthew kind of intended for us to do. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at one final truth uh, that I believe that Matthew is trying to communicate to us through this, through this uh, genealogy. And so let me show you the truth, and then I want to spend the rest of the time uh, just kind of unpacking that simple statement of truth uh, that I believe Matthew is trying to teach us. And so here it is. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot this down. But this is what I want to spend our entire message today talking about, okay? And so, so this is it. I believe that Matthew in this genealogy is teaching us this simple truth, that the gospel is good news, not good advice, okay? So, so what Matthew's going to show us, and I, I want to show you how I think he does this in a very strategic way in this gospel, uh, in this genealogy, he's going to teach us that the gospel, and the gospel, by the way, is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Je- it's Christmas, the story of his birth, of his life, of his death and his resurrection. That the story of Jesus, the gospel, is good news. It's good news, not good advice. All right. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Okay. Well, well, why don't we just break this little statement down for the rest of our time together? And I actually want to start by just focusing on the first part. Okay. So the first part is that the gospel is good news. Okay, so let's just talk about that for a while. The, Matthew is going to show us that the gospel is news, that it is good news. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, my guess is that for all of us, the moment that I put this phrase up there, that you're probably already starting to do some math. And I think that all of us know that there's a big difference between news and advice. It's a big difference between those two things. And we all know what news is, right? Um, I actually, just for the sake of clarity, actually looked up a definition of news on, on an online dictionary. I'll just read to you the definition I found. It said this. It said that news is a report about a significant or noteworthy event. Okay, that's what news is. All of us know that. It's the report of a significant or noteworthy event. In other words, news is an event. It is a fact. It is something that is tied to time and to space and to history. Right? That's what news is. And all of us know that news is a little different than advice. And, and Matthew is making this point that the story of Jesus, that the gospel of Jesus is news, that it's something that you can locate into time and space and history. Now, l- let me show you what I'm talking about. I want you just to glance down with me at the very first verse of Matthew's gospel. Look at the very first verse. Here's how Matthew decides to start his story of Jesus. Verse one, 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. This is how Matthew decides to begin his story about Jesus. Some of you might have different translations. Like, for example, if you have the New American Standard Bible, it reads this way. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The New Living Translation says it this way. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. You're like, okay, fantastic. What does that have to do with anything? Well, well here's, what I'm trying to, here's what I'm trying to get at, okay? Most of the time, and, and I think all of you guys understand this, whenever we, we tell stories that are intended to warm the heart, and whenever we tell stories that are intended to motivate, that are intended to inspire, that are intended to, to entertain, right? How do we tend to start those stories? Well, we tend to start them in a very abstract and vague way, right? So, for example, most fairy tales that you see or most legends or myths, how do they begin? Once upon a time, right? Once upon a time. It's not located to time or space or history. It's this nebulous reference. Once upon a time. When? Once. Like, well, exactly what time? I don't know. Upon a time, right? It just, it happened. It doesn't really matter. And why doesn't it matter? Because that's not the point, right? So when it's a legend or it's a fable or whenever it's a, a, a story that's intended to warm our hearts, oftentimes it'll start in a very nebulous way, very abstract, not tied to anything. I just think for a moment about Star Wars, right? I know episode, or I know Rogue, is it Rogue One came out this, this past week? And by the way, anyone see that? Just out of curiosity, anyone see Rogue One? Okay, thumbs up, thumbs down. Was it good? Should I see it? Okay, yeah, all thumbs up. Good, unanimous. I'm going to go watch it then. Awesome. But uh, remember how start that, whole, that whole saga begins? In a galaxy far, far away, right? You're like, okay, well, hold on a minute. What, which galaxy? Because last time I checked, I think there was, what, 400 billion estimated galaxies in the universe. So, so like, which one? Uh, just, you know, in a, in a galaxy. Well, like, far away. Like, how far? Like, far, far. It just doesn't matter, right? Because the, the point of Star Wars is that it's, it's, it's an inspirational, it's a motivational, it's an entertaining story. So they don't care so much about those details. And what, here's what I'm driving at. When Matthew begins his story about Jesus... He starts by saying, here's a genealogical account of the ancestry of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Who starts a story? Who starts a heartwarming story that way? Let me give you a genealogy about this. What is he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's trying to locate Jesus into time, into space, into history. And he's telling us this. This is news. This, isn't, this is not advice. This is not heartwarming allegory. This is news. This is good news. It's based on an event. It's based on something that happened. And by the way, this isn't just Matthew who does this. When you read through the Gospels, I don't know if you knew this or not, but in the Bible, there's actually four Gospels. There's four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read those Gospels, you see that all the Gospel writers do this. In fact, let me just show you uh, Luke, one of the gospel writers. Let me show you how he begins his story of Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 1. I'll just put it up on the, on the, uh, the screen for us. Here's what Luke says in Luke chapter 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Who in the world starts a story that way, right? See, Luke, Luke some of you might, might be familiar with this, he was a doctor, and, and he's writing to this guy named Theophilus, and he's saying, listen, 
you, you know there's been a lot of eyewitnesses. There's been a lot of stories about this, a lot of news circulating about this guy, Jesus. He says, so I went out and I did some investigative work. I, I, I investigated the eyewitnesses. I checked references. I did background checks. And he says, now I'm presenting to you, Theophilus, a person. I'm, I'm presenting to you the facts of what I found to affirm what you believe. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing that Matthew is saying. We're dealing with news. The story of the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not just a heartwarming thing. It's, it, it's all kind of point. If you ever read through the Bible, one of the things that you'll notice is that over and over again, the Bible gives us these little details that, that locate and tie us to time, space, and history. It mentions leaders and major events, things that, things that you can track back to historically. And why is that? Because all of the gospel writers in the entire Bible is trying to make this point that what we're dealing with is a reality. It's news. It's something that happened. And by the way, on that point, I just want to mention something that, that is related to that, that I think we kind of touched on this last week. But I think that this is a, another, uh, it's another aspect of the Bible that I believe adds so much credibility to the Bible itself. Uh, one of the reasons that I think the Bible is so true is not only because of stuff like this genealogy and, and, and those things, which tie the story of Jesus to time, space, and history, but you'll also notice when you read through the Bible that over and over again, it includes these really bizarre, almost idiosyncratic, like uh, strange, weird little details that, that you're like, why in the world would you even bring that up unless it was true? Now, if that doesn't make sense, let me try to explain it this way. So, um, this past week at Life Group, I was talking to a, one of the guys at our Life Group, and he, he mentioned to me, he's like, you, you really need to see this documentary on Netflix about Bo Jackson. And uh, he was saying it was really awesome, and it was one of those 30 for 30 ESPN documentaries. I don't know if you know what that is, but I was like, yeah, I'll check it out. So I went and watched it. If you guys don't know who Bo Jackson is, by the way, Bo Jackson, uh, arguably, maybe one of the best athlete, professional athletes that we've seen in several decades. And uh, uh, just unbelievably talented athlete, professional football, uh, professional uh, baseball, just absolute all-star. You guys might remember the, the Bo Nose campaign back in the, I think it was the 80s and the 90s that all that kind of took place. And, and for those of you who maybe are a little older might remember the original Tech Mobile. Remember that on Nintendo? Bo Jackson was the fastest character on that entire game. I think two of you might know what I'm talking about when I say that. But anyway, uh, on this documentary, they were talking about Bo Jackson. I thought this was so fascinating. They, they said that Bo Jackson was so athletically talented, even as a young guy, that there is these stories that people would tell about the things, the feats that he, would, that he would perform as a young athlete. And so they were telling this story about this one time that Bo Jackson, I guess he was 15 years old, he was in middle school with a bunch of his friends at an outdoor basketball court, and allegedly he dunked a stick. So he found a stick, I don't know, and he, he went up and he just dunked a stick, and everyone kind of told the story, Bo Jackson dunked a stick. And I, and I found it so fascinating what one of the sports commentators said about this. I actually wrote it down. I found it so fascinating. Here, here's what one sports commentator said. His name is Chuck Klosterman. He said this. He said, the stories of Bo Jackson were amazing because not only were they very vivid, but they also were really weird. And then he goes on and he talks about Bo Jackson dunking a stick. And this is what he says. He says, it was so strange that it had to be real because why in the world would someone make up a story that Bo Jackson was dunking a stick. Why would someone make that up? It's so weird, it has to be true. And, and when he said that, I thought, man, that is, that is exactly true of the Bible. And when you read through the Bible, there are all of these idiosyncratic little details that you're like, 
this has to be. Like, if someone wanted to make up a legend about Bo Jackson, you would know it because it would go something like this. Like, one time when Bo Jackson was nine, he jumped over ten men and, and dunked a basketball, right? That sounds fake. But if you're like, he dunked a stick, you're like, that's weird. It's probably really happened. And when you read the Bible, there's so many of these little idiosyncratic, tiny details that are just strange. And I, I could give you a, a bunch of examples, but I'll just give you one. I'll give you probably my favorite. One of my favorites is in Acts 12. And in Acts chapter 12, the Bible says that Peter, one of the apostles, was arrested for his faith in Jesus Christ. So he was put in prison, and he was awaiting execution. He was going to be put to death the next day. And so the Bible says that the church heard about this, so they rallied together at one of their houses, and they started praying like just fervently. They're like, please, God, you know, save Peter, save Peter, save Peter. Save. So they're praying this prayer. And the Bible says that while they're having this all-night prayer meeting, that an angel shows up to Peter while he's in prison and says, Peter, get up. I'm going to rescue you from prison. And so Peter gets up, and, and I love the way the Bible says it. The Bible says that Peter thought he was having a dream. So he's like, oh, this is a weird dream. I must have ate, you know, too many burritos last night or something. I don't know. He's like, all right, I'll go with it. And so he, he walks out with the angel, and the Bible says the angel delivers him from prison. And then when he gets out into the streets, he realizes that it's not a dream, that it really happened. And so the Bible says that Peter then decides that he's going to go to the house where the prayer meeting is taking place. So Peter goes to this meeting. You know, all the people are inside. And they're all like, God, please, you know, save Peter, save Peter, save Peter, praying fervently. And meanwhile, Peter's outside, and he knocks on the door. And the Bible tells us this weird little detail. It says that this, this bond servant woman, this, this, this young woman who was a servant in that household named Rhoda, gives us her name, says she came up to the door to answer the door, and she's like, who is it, you know? And he's like, it's Peter, let me in, I'm out of prison. And the Bible says she was so astonished and she was so excited about what happened that she forgot to let him in. And so she, she's like, it's Peter, and she runs back into the place where everyone is praying. Meanwhile, Peter's still outside. And she's like, you guys, Peter's outside. And the Bible says that all of the response of the people who are praying is they were like, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Rhoda, you're crazy. We're praying that God would release Peter from prison. She's like, stop praying. He's out there. And they're like, shut up, Rhoda. We're praying that God would release Peter. She's like, I'm telling you he's out there. And meanwhile, the Bible says that Peter's still out here knocking like, would someone let me in? Please let me in. They're looking for me, right? And I, as I'm reading this, the first time I read this, I remember I thought to myself, that's so weird. What a clumsy story. I mean, if, if you were to make up a legend, don't you think it would go something like this? Peter was in prison, and an angel showed up and said, I'm going to save you from prison. And Peter said, yes, my Lord. And he got up, and he walked out of the prison. And as soon as he walked out, he busted down the door of the house where people were praying. Right? I don't know what this is. Apparently, it's a ballet, right? He busted into the house of the place where people were praying, and he said, behold, it is I. And they all said, praise God. And Rhoda said, oh, Peter, right? That's what you would imagine what happened? But, but what's the story really look like? Peter thought he was having a weird dream. Rhoda got excited, forgot to let Peter in. No one believed the prayer that they were praying. Doesn't that sound like real? Like it could really happen? Small little details the Bible puts into place. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis, um, some of you might know C.S. Lewis. Is a, um, he's noted to be one of the best apologists of the 20th century. He was an Oxford don. Uh, but oddly enough, when he was at Oxford, apologetics was not his focus. It was not his focal point of study. Uh, neither was theology. It was actually was literary history. And here's what C.S. Lewis said after reading the Gospels. I thought this was so cool. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, now as a literary historian, remember that's what he was professionally. He said, I'm perfectly convinced that whether 
that, that whatever else, that the Gospels, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative standpoint, uh, point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. There's nothing, even in the modern literature, until about 100 years ago, when the realistic novel came into existence. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art form. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the thing really happened. The author put it in simply because he had seen it. So here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying the same thing that Matthew is saying. He's saying that what we're dealing with here is news. We're we're dealing with something that you can locate in time and space and history. If you're a person that's investigating Jesus here tonight, you're investigating Christianity, I think this is a really, really important distinction to, to understand about Christianity is that Christianity, in its very core, is not based on advice. It's not based on teaching. Now, it includes those things, but that's not the central thrust. That's not the the central point of focus behind Christianity. Christianity is built off of an event. It's built off of news. And what is that event? What is the news? Here's the event. That Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that God brought forth his Messiah into time, into space, into history, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died a sacrificial death. He was executed by the Roman government on a cross, and three days later, he rose again. And as a result of that, those who put their faith in him will follow him in the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. That is the news of Christianity, okay? Now, now here's the thing. Christianity is built off of that. And so either that event, that news happened, either Christmas really happened, or it didn't. And, and I said this before, and, and I, I think it's worth saying again. If that didn't happen, if this Jesus thing didn't happen, if this news, did, if this didn't occur as news, then what we're doing right now is a colossal waste of time. It's a colossal waste of your time, and it's a colossal waste of my time. Because all of Christianity hinges not on advice, not on moral teaching, but on news, but on an event, something that happened. And what Matthew is trying to point out is he's saying... This is true. This happened. You can locate this in time and space and history. And so the first thing he's telling us is that the gospel is news. It's good news. But the second thing, I want you to notice the second part of this statement. And I think this is so cool how Matthew pulls this out. But notice the second part of the statement is that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Now, what am I talking about when I say that the gospel is not good advice? Okay, well, let me, let me show you what I mean. Uh, glance down with me real quick at the very end of this genealogy at verse 17, the way that Matthew finishes this genealogy. Here's what he says. He says, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and then there was 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And that's how he ends his genealogy. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Um, When Matthew puts forth his genealogy, he sets it up with a very certain structure. There's a very specific structure to Matthew's genealogy. He points it out in verse 17. He says that there were three blocks, uh, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to the Messiah. And each one of these blocks is comprised of 14 generations. In fact, my guess is if you have your Bibles open in front of you, if you glance down at them, what you'll notice is that, um, it, is, that it is structured in such a way that it is indented in three different, uh, in three different segments. 
And you could probably, if you, depending on the Bible that you have, you probably see that there. Now this, by the way, was kind of a common practice. Back in this time, authors would oftentimes take genealogies and they would organize them in a structured way in order to make a point. And Matthew is doing the same thing. And so the question is, why did Matthew structure his genealogy this way? What is the point that he's trying to convey? Well, I believe that when he says that, that each one of these segments had 14 generations, that he did that for a very specific reason. And here's what I think it is. All right, so 14, 14 generations in between each of these segments. 14 is, is composed of what? It's composed of two sevens, right? So two sevens equal 14. I know that's really, really profound. But what I want you to notice is Matthew says, here you have three sets of 14. Now, just help me out. How many, how many sevens does it, does it take to make three sets of 14? Help me. Six. All right, yeah, you guys are great mathematicians. So, yeah, six, right? And so what, what is Matthew doing here? He's saying, okay, so Jesus Christ, in his arrival, is bringing in, is ushering in the seventh seven. And so Jesus is the seventh seven. This is the point that Matthew is trying to make. Some of you are like, okay, la-di-da. But listen, you got to remember something. Okay, so let me, let me try to connect the dots here. You have to remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he is assuming that the, this is a group of people that was well acquainted with the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament back, backwards, forwards, any which way. This is, the Old Testament is what, what Jewish people studied in school when they learned how to read. So they knew the Old Testament so well, and Matthew knew that. And some of you guys know this, that the number seven in the Jewish mind in the Old Testament was a very significant number. Uh, the number seven is actually known to be God's number. It's the number of perfection in the Old Testament. Uh, some of you might remember in Genesis chapter one, when God creates the world, how long does it take for him to create everything? The Bible says seven or six days he creates everything. And on the seventh day, God rests. Uh, God de declares a holy day, a day that's set apart for his purposes on the seventh day. It's a day of rest. It's a day of completion. It's a, it's a day of, of perfection. It's number seven. That's what seven's all about. In fact, this, this theme is found all throughout the Old Testament. When God um, rose up his people, the Israelites, he commanded them to follow this same kind of rhythm of seven. So let, let me just show you what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, some of you guys know, uh, God commanded that every seventh day his people take a Sabbath. So he said, I want you to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, I want you to, to, to not work at all. That is a holy day to be consecrated to God. It is a day of rest. That is to be the Sabbath. He says, I want you to pattern yourself after the way I created things. This is the rhythm of creation. Now, here's what you might not know, is that the Bible actually takes this principle of Sabbath, and it applies it not only to days, but it also applies it to years. And so the Bible says in Numbers chapter 25, for example, God commands his people. He says, here's what I want you to do. He says, every seventh year, I want you to take a Sabbath year. And so God said, I want you to work for six years. I want you to plow the land. I want you to work it, farm, all that kind of stuff. But on the seventh year, no work. I want you to give the land a rest. I, want you to, I wish we still did this, by the way. It would be awesome, wouldn't it be? He said, on the seventh year, I want you to rest. I want, you to, I want, I want the land to rest. I want everything to kind of rest. Now, now, what you might not know is this. The Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible actually goes on in Numbers chapter 25, or Leviticus chapter 25, I'm sorry. And he says that every seventh seven, that every time a block of seven years is finished, he says there's something that, that he declared that he said that's going to be called the year of Jubilee. And let me just show you, if you've never heard of the year of Jubilee, let me just show you what God says about this in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. Here's what God says. 
He says, I want you to count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath among a, a year amount period of, of 49 years. He said, then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return your family and your property into your own clan. And what he's going to go on to say in this passage and also in Deuteronomy chapter 15 about the, the year of Jubilee is he goes on to say that in the year of Jubilee, here's what happens. Everything in that economy and in that culture resets. So he says, um, everyone goes back to their original place of land that God, God proportioned for them. So everyone moves back. No matter what happened over this course of 50 years, you get to reset back to the normal original state. The Bible says that on the year of Jubilee, that all debts went to zero. And so if you were in credit card, card debt up to your eyeballs and you hit the year of Jubilee, it reset. Zero. All debts are forgiven. How awesome would that be, right? The Bible said that in the year of Jubilee, all slaves went free. And back in this culture, some of you might know that it was very normal for people to sell themselves into slavery. So if you owed someone, something to someone or if you had wronged them, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay that off in some way. But the Bible says when Jubilee came along, no, no, all slaves go free. All debts go to zero. Everything is redeemed back to the way that it was supposed to be 50 years prior to that. And there would be peace and there would be rest for that 50th year. Now, what is, what is Matthew saying when he says Jesus is the seventh seven? Well, to the Jewish mind, what he's saying is he's evoking the image of Jubilee. And he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jubilee. He's the real Jubilee. That Jesus is the one who ushers in peace and rest. Because think about it for a minute. What did Jesus come to do exactly? Well, the Bible tells us, the Bible says in Luke chapter 4, Jesus came to set the captive free. Those who are held in captivity by sin, those of us who are held in captivity by guilt and shame, the Bible says that Jesus came to set the captive free. What does the Bible say Jesus came to do? The Bible says that Jesus came to cancel all of our debts, that Jesus came to forgive our sins. The Bible says, that, that's why in John chapter 3 verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save it. I came to forgive. I came to cancel the debts, to set the captives free. Why did Jesus come? The Bible says Jesus came to give rest to the weary. He says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, all of you who are, who are, who are burdened and are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm the true Jubilee, right? Why did Jesus come? The Bible says that Jesus came to set everything back into its proper state that he came to redeem us back into the right relationship that we were intended to have with God. And I believe what Matthew is saying, he's saying, man, Jesus is the seventh seven. He is the Jubilee. And by the way, I believe that this is exactly what the apostle Paul means. Let me just show you a great verse in the book of Colossians chapter two, when he says this, Paul says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or not for celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies, or look at this, or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality that's yet to come, and Christ himself is the reality. So what Paul's saying, he's saying all these things, the Old Testament jubilee and the Sabbath, it's all foreshadowing of a greater reality that's found in Jesus Christ. Now, why in the world is that so important? Why is it important that, that Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the true jubilee? Why is that significant? Well, here's why it's significant. Because to the slave... To the person who is in debt, the year of Jubilee was not good advice. It was good news. 
right? It wasn't like God came and said, I, got, you know, let me, I want to proclaim to you, here's 10 great ways, 10 great pieces of advice to get out of debt faster. I have a great debt annihilation plan for you. That's not what God did on the year of Jubilee. He didn't say, hey, if you're a slave, I have seven great principles that, that's going to make your life as a slave way more tolerable. Just follow these seven rules and everything's going to go great for you. It's not what he did. He said, no, it's good news. And the good news, you don't, it's not good advice, it's good news. Slaves go free. Debts are canceled. And this is good news for us. This, this whole language, this, this idea of good, good news versus good advice, by the way, I think this is such an important distinction that really helps you understand what the true meaning of Christmas and what the, the true meaning of Christianity really is. It's interesting, this idea of advice versus news. I, I first heard this. I kind of, I kind of uh, adapted it from a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor out in New York City, phenomenal, phenomenal pastor. And he actually adopted it from another pastor, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was one of the greatest, uh, uh, notably one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century. And I want you to notice something that Dr. Lloyd-Jones said. Here's what he said. He said this. He said that advice is counsel about something to do, and it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. He says, but news is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. And see, he, he says that the, that, that the true essence of Christianity is that it's good news, not good advice. What Martin Lloyd-Jones will go on to say is this. He'll say that every other religion dispenses good advice. Every other religion says, here's how you can be a better person. Here's how you can do this. Here's, how you can, here's, here's the best way to live and just do these things and, and behave the right way. He says, Christianity is, is markedly different because it does not begin from the vantage point of good advice. It begins from the advantage point of good news. And like I mentioned to you, I believe that this is the, the most important distinction you can make as it relates to the true meaning of Christmas and the true meaning of Christianity. See if I can explain it this way. So um, I was thinking about this, this good news, good advice thing. And, and the, the story that kept coming to my mind was when, uh, when my first son was born. So if you guys know anything about me, you know that um, I'm married to my, my wife, Jessica. We've been married for almost 10 years now. We've got three little kids. So we have a seven-year-old and a six-year-old boy. And then we have a little princess. Our princess is 11 months now. And so she's, she's awesome. And it's just having little kids is so fun. And, but I remember when we had Neam, he was Nehemiah was our first. We call him Neam. And when he was, I remember when he was born, you know, he was our first, so it was, everything was new and everything was scary and everything was exciting. It was all, all brand new. We have, by, by the third, we're like, yeah, whatever, she's fine, you know. But, but by the first one, I remember everything was just so like, we were just, it was, you know, we were so scared and we were so nervous and everything was so new. And so anyway, Jess gave birth to Neam and I remember it was kind of a, it was a crazy thing. She was uh, in labor with him for 24 hours, poor, poor girl. And eventually Neam was born and eventually we got to take him home. And it was, you know, we're trying to adjust to having the life of a newborn and stuff. And I'll never forget we got this call. And it was one of the doctors back at the hospital. So a few days after we had gotten home. And they said, uh, they said hey, uh, you know, they take a standard blood test whenever the baby is born. And they said, hey, uh, we just want to let you know that there was, a, there was an ab- abnormality in, uh, in Neam's blood. And they said, there, there is a uh, slight chance. They said, there's a, a chance. They gave us a percentage. They said, there's a chance that he might have cystic fibrosis. And, um, and I, I remember we were like, okay. And, and to my own naivety, I had no idea what that was. So I was like, I don't really know what that is. So I got out my computer, and I remember I Googled cystic fibrosis, and I found out what it was. And some of you, some of you know all the details about it. But long story short, I came to the conclusion that if he had this, 
then most likely what that meant was that I was going to outlive him. And so that the average age, uh, I guess, life expectancy, at least from the sites that I was reading, was about mid-30s for someone who had cystic fibrosis. And I just remember reading this and thinking to myself, oh, man, wow, this is my little boy, you know, and, and it's our firstborn and all that stuff. And so we called the doctor back, and we said, well, wh- how do we know for certain? Like, how can we find out? And they said, well, you have to go to a geneticist. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's how you say it, but a genetic doctor. They said, you need to not only get his blood taken, but you and your wife also need to get in and get your blood taken because it's a genetic thing. And so we went in and we did all of that. And I remember they told us, they said, listen, it's going to be a month before you find out anything. And we were like, oh my gosh, wow, we got to wait a whole month to figure this out. And as many of you guys have been in a situation like that and you've experienced a waiting, a holding, maybe you're even in a situation like that right now, you're in a holding pattern. And man, you just know, we just, we just cried out to God in that time. I just, we prayed, man, God, please, please don't let this be the case. But if it is, man, prepare us, God, prepare us if this is, if this is what we have to prepare for. And I just remember that whole time, that whole month, just thinking, you know, and I, I was like, I, I, hope, I hope this isn't the case, but I was trying to prepare myself for reality. And I thought, well, if this is the case, then I need to really start thinking this through. I really need to start thinking about what's it going to be like to, to grow up with, with my son, knowing that we're going to be fighting for his life for a good amount of his life. And so I remember thinking we did all the research we could on cystic fibrosis. I remember uh, at that time at, we were at the Bath campus, and I remember there was a woman who was a cystic fibrosis specialist who went to our campus, and so we talked to her. And she gave us all kinds of good advice. She said, listen, there's great treatments out there. Uh, you know, there, there's incredible advancements that have been made. And she gave us really good advice. And so anyway, this whole month, praying about it, trying to figure out, you know, set my expectation for reality. And I remember they called us and they said, hey, uh, we have the results. So we'd like to come in and have you guys come in and we can discuss those. And so we're like, yeah. So we, I remember we were, I still remember so vividly waiting in that waiting room. And it was my wife and I, and it was our little, our little boy, Neam. And I was just like, man, God, please, like, I just want to trust you. Whatever it is that you have is going to be fine. And but God is praying and praying and just being so nervous. And I remember they called our name. And I'll never forget this. I remember sitting across the table from this woman, this doctor, this, this uh, geneticist or whatever it was. And I remember she started explaining to us all the details behind the test. And I was just like, okay, well, get on with it, you know. And so finally she said this. I'll never forget this. She said, I have good news. And she, she didn't even say anything else. She went on, but she didn't even say, because I knew the moment she said, I have good news. I knew exactly what she meant. And she went on. She said, I have good news. His test was negative. He doesn't have cystic fibrosis. But listen, I'm just telling you, there is a difference between good news and good advice. See, if, if I would have sat down and she would have said, hey, uh, before I give you the results, I just want to tell you, I have some good advice I want to give you guys. There's some great treatment plans available, and let me just tell you that you can really fight this thing, and let me go, listen, I know, I know the difference between good news and good advice. If she would have said, I have good advice, what that would have meant is it would have meant that we would have spent the rest of his life fighting for his life. But the moment she said, no, we have good news, I have good news for you, there was release. And there was relief and there was peace that happened on the inside because of good news. You guys, listen, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not try harder, work harder, earn yourself to God. And maybe if you get yourself just right, you can fight for your life and then eventually you'll be accepted by God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a declaration of good news. 
It's news. Listen, the last thing that this culture needs is more advice. We have advice and advice and advice and advice columns and blogs and this teacher. And that the last thing we need is more advice. What we need is we need a savior. We need someone who can come in, who can take away our sin, who can take away the evil, who can destroy death. That's what we need. And Christmas tells us that, man, this is a declaration of good news. It's a declaration of good news. I think one of the biggest misunderstandings that people have about Christianity is that Christianity is primarily about good advice. It's about good morality. It's about good teaching. And like I said, don't get me wrong, the Bible includes that. But it's built off of an event. It's built off of the news, off of good news about something that Jesus has done for us. And when you embrace the gospel as news, it brings peace into your heart. It brings calm into your heart. How? Not because of what you do, but because of what God has done for you. And you can rest in that. You can rest in what God has accomplished for you. Because he, he alone is the one who has covered our sins. He alone is the one who's defeated death. And so I guess the real question is this. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to the gospel as good news? Or do you understand Christianity as good advice? See, if, you, if you're saying, yeah, Christianity, I know what Christianity is about. Christianity is about, you know, keeping the Ten Commandments and being a good person and, and, and you know, trying your best. And at the end of your life, you know, if, you're good, if the good outweighs the bad, then I guess God will accept you. And if the bad outweighs the good, then I guess you're, that's, not, that's just not the gospel. Gospel's not good advice. It's not a moral, a, a, it's not based on morality. God is primarily based on the teaching that what God has done for us is good news. Christ has accomplished something for us. And if you've never come to the place of embracing the gospel as news, if you've never heard that before, if that makes sense to you in a way that it's never made sense to you before, then listen, I would, I would encourage you then, if that's the case, that this is, this is it. I, I have good news for you. If that's where you're at, if you've never embraced his good news, I have good news for you. And here's the good news. Here's the news. The event is that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin in time and space and history. That it's not an allegory, that it's, that, it's not, that it's not some motivational story, that it really happened. In time and space and history, God brought forth his Messiah. She, he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He, he lived a perfect life for our sake that we couldn't live. And then he died a sacrificial death. He was executed on a Roman cross by the Roman government. And on that cross, he died for the sins of humanity. And the Bible says that he was put in a tomb, but three days later, he rose again. And when he rose again, he defeated death, he defeated sin, and he defeated Satan. And those who put their faith and their trust in him will follow him in their resurrection. And he will come back again, and he will judge the living and the dead. And those who have put their hope and their faith in him will follow him into the forgiveness of sins and to eternal life. And that is not some heartwarming story. It's news. It's news. And if you've never come to Christ this way, if you've never embraced it that way, that I would encourage you to do one of two things. Either embrace it or investigate it, all right? Embrace it. So if you're like, man, I've never embraced Christ this way, then do that. You can do that today. You can embrace this news and allow it to resonate in your heart and to transform your life. Or if you're like, I don't know, man, if you're saying this really happened, I don't know if I can buy that, then I would say investigate it. The Bible has given us ample and sufficient evidences that you can trace down, you can go after and you can learn, but don't let it sit. Don't let it sit as an allegory because it's good news. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Let's pray.
Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for this good news that we have, God, that you have brought forth your Messiah here in time and space and history. Father, the truth is, for I think for many, many people, um, Christmas has been reduced down to uh, kind of a heartwarming, I don't know, allegory that teaches us good moral lessons. But the truth is, we can't take Christmas that way. You, for, for the, I mean, I guess first off, I don't know what the moral of the story would be. Birth outdoors? I have no idea what the moral of the Christmas story would be. But Father, uh, because this is an event, because this is news that took place, that's tied to time and space and history, that means that we have something solid, something that we can anchor our hope in. And so, Father, I pray that even tonight, for some of us that have never come to you, have never come to the gospel as good news, but we've come to it as good advice, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with that, God. And maybe for the first time, to embrace this as the reality that you have put forth, God, and to offer us the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And so, Jesus, I just pray for that. For, for the person that's investigating you today, maybe, maybe they've never thought of it this way, that, that, that this is an event that occurred, and either it did or it didn't. But Father, I don't, think, I don't think there's any other way that we can approach this. I think that your scripture has made it super clear. And as a result of that, Father, I pray that you'd help some of us just to do the hard work of digging and investigating and figuring out Lord, what lies behind these evidences. And, and so God, I, I thank you for good news because I believe that humanity doesn't need more good advice, that what we need is a savior. We need good news. We need the announcements and the proclamation God, that you have accomplished something. And that's what Christmas is. Christmas is a profound declaration of salvation to humanity that's been issued by you. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to follow you and to, uh, Lord, just to embrace the news that you put forth. Thanks, God. We're just so thankful for Christmas. We're thankful for what it really means. And beyond the decorations and the Christmas trees and Santa and the presents and the family and all that's fun and all that's great. Father, I pray you wouldn't help us to lose sight that Christmas is a declaration of news, of good news that's available to us in Jesus Christ. So God, help us to be encouraged by this. And I pray, Father, we'd live in light of the realities of what you've shown us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.